have a have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know we've been working our way through Mark. We're not finished yet. We're not going to finish today, but we're going to get mighty close. In just a second or two, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. And while you're turning there, if I don't get a chance to wish all of you a very safe and prosperous and happy Thanksgiving, let me just do that now. Um, you'll be prayed for, Lord willing, over the, over the week. And I love Thanksgiving, and I pray that God's blessing will be on all your homes and all your plans. Verse 14, chapter 13 of Mark's Gospel, page 719 in the Church Bibles. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand then. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof or of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time, and I think we'll, we'll stop there. Let's pray. God, may you please bless the reading of our word. Father, we would pray first as we think about um, the needs of the body. We're going to pray for the Bostaff family again. You, you know where they're at in Duluth, and you, you know they need some clarity. The doctors do, and you've been watching over them so carefully, and we want to thank you for that. They mean so much to us, and we pray that your mercy would keep being poured over little Bruce, that his body will be made well at the time of your choosing. That's our prayer, Father. The doctors will know what needs to be done, and they'll be able to do it, and by your grace and mighty power, it will be done. So carry them, God, as they go through this, as they really have to walk through this, and I I can't imagine what they're thinking, but I know that you know, and I know you care. And so, God, we pray that um, they would feel it and know it every, every second of this journey that they're on, their extended family as well. Now, Father, in a moment like this, with the words that I just read, there's no doubt that we need your help, that I need your help. And so we plead for your grace and your mercy to teach us what we need to know from these verses this morning. And so we ask for help and We want the help in order for you to bring glory to yourself right now, to bring a measure of comfort to your people, and to bring everyone in this room to Jesus Christ. And it is for Jesus' sake that we pray such things. Amen. Well, we have been saying that our need for security is a legitimate need, and that need is, is kind of the driving force of this chapter, which began with those two questions in verse Two, by a disciple, Jesus had told them the temple is not going to be around, the one that they just thought was so wonderful, and they have, of course, questions in light of that. And so we've been learning 
so far that Jesus is drawing his followers away from any false security that they might hold to other than him. In other words, people do need security, and God wants to give people security, but the kind of security that people need can only be found in Christ, that Jesus Christ is not only his people's security, but the world's security. So this is much more than he is to be our security, our only security, as if we had a choice. No, the, the, the times demand, the fact that we are going to die demands that he is the world's only security. And now if you think about this, and Luther sometimes do this, I've been reading through this prayer book of Luther on the Psalms, and he always takes a Psalm and then he says, here's what commandments these Psalms are talking about. It's wonderful. But anyway... If you think about what Jesus is doing, it's the first two commandments is what he's trying to teach. Number one, that we're to have no other gods before us. And number two, no false idols created by us. In other words, there cannot be any false security. The disciples then had learned in chapter 12, verse 28, that the greatest commandment, the the culmination of all the commandments is to love God with all we have and to love people just like they were us. Therefore, Jesus carefully And we said last time, pastorally, because this is shepherding here, he begins to show them their sin. He shows them himself and shows them their need of him. Because what he does, he takes away every false idol, every false security that they might be tempted to run to when, if you would, times are bad. For example, verse 8, if your Bible's open, Jesus said there's not going to be any security in human society, right? No national security. You see it there because nations and kingdoms will be at war with each other. And notice Jesus doesn't tell us which nations. So we can't say, okay, I'll move here and I'll go there and I'll be safe. We don't know. No national security. No natural security or security in the natural order. That's verse 8, the second part there. There's going to be earthquakes and famines. Again, we don't know where and we don't know when they'll happen. So we can't say, if we go there, we'll be safe. No, no security in that kind of thing. And for, the, for them, there in verse 2, there's not going to be any security in the Jewish temple. We've talked through that. And as you're thinking about that, that means there's, there's no security in some kind of holy place that we could go to or maybe move to to be safe from all the troubles. Jesus says, no, you can't do that. And then verse 9, there's no personal security, even in the Christian order, right? Verse 9, you followers of Jesus, you have to be on your guard. Why? Because even you, you who belong to Jesus, the redeemed community, even you will not be immune to the violence and the trouble which is going to engulf the whole world and will confront the disciples of Jesus Christ. So you're thinking with me, there's no national security and security in human society. There's no security in the natural order. There's no security in the Jewish order. There's no security even in the Christian order. And it gets worse, unfortunately, verse 12. There's not even security in the family order, right? So there's a potential, Jesus says, for brother to betray brother because of Jesus, father to child, child to father. That's terrible. Put to death for Jesus' reasons. In other words, every place or every person that we would be tempted to place our trust in to give us the security that we so desperately seek, Jesus says, they're going to eventually, can be, will be taken away. Except him. He's the only one. No false idols for our security. No other gods to cling to for our security. And loved ones, the list here is not exhaustive, is it? Some people turn to horoscopes. 
Future tellers define their security. Some people look, look, I'm just going to back out. I'm going to live a quiet life. I'm going to hide myself in, in a compound in the country. No, it's not going to happen. However, isn't it amazing? We have to think through this because context matters. That this chapter 13, remember we said that chapter 13 is kind of like a prototype or a pattern for how people should live in, in these last days. Still, isn't it amazing in the context of chapter 13 that there are two ladies, okay? There's one before it at the end of chapter 12. You see her there if your Bible's open, the poor widow. And there's another lady that we're going to get to eventually in chapter 14. So these two ladies are the bookends to this lesson, and they give us a wonderful pattern of how we are to live in these last days. Chapter 12, verse 44, the poor, poor widow, she obeys the first command. My whole life is yours, God. Every, everything I have is yours. And you notice that no one pays attention to what she's doing except who? Except Jesus, right? Except Jesus. Chapter 14, there's that poor woman who, who pours a whole jar of very expensive perfume a whole life's wages for a year bottled up and she pours it on the feet of Jesus in preparation for his death. Again, almost the whole room is against her except who? The one who matters most, Jesus. You see, that's why to me, this is amazing. And forgive me, it's not the men here, right? Not the disciples, but the ladies who are prepared for these last days. I'm not trying to be silly here, but the, the phrase I had in my head is sometimes people think about the last days, and you know, like, whoever the enemy is, I thought, okay, honey, go get my gun. I think there's some Russians in the backyard. It's not going to be like that, right? It's not going to be like that. It's just going to be in the dailiness of life, these simple little deeds that push away the darkness. We're going to have three references to Lord of the Rings today. Here's the first one. Because this quote came in my head. I, I love the quote. This is J.R.R. Tolkien. This actually came from the book. This is Gandalf talking why he loves Bilbo Baggins, right? He says, some believe it is only great power that can hold evil in check. It's going to make me cry because it's so darn true. Because most people believe that. But that's not what I found. It's in the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Right? So... Why Bilbo Baggins? Perhaps because I'm afraid. And he gives me courage. You see, one of the things that are going to happen in the last days, this is 2 Timothy, Paul says, it's going to be terrible times. People are going to love themselves. They're going to love money. They're going to be boastful, proud. They're going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They're going to have a form of godliness, but no power. And they're never going to be able to learn the truth. You mean like the 12 disciples? Well, kind of. Like, like the wealthy people giving in the end of chapter 12, no one thought the lady was great except Jesus. You mean like almost everyone in the room in chapter 14, why this waste, you can't do that kind of thing. And Jesus said, that's silly. Don't love your money more than me. That's how you live in these last days. So I want you to understand whatever conclusion that we come to in chapter 13, okay, is it only about the temple or is it only about the end or is it a little bit of both? Are there six ways, seven ways that we can understand this? Whatever, whatever it is, our behavior as Christians because of Christ does not need to change. Does not need to change and I think we'll find that to be true. So the point of this chapter is not to tell us exactly when the end will come. Luther tried that, Jonathan Edwards tried that, two of the greatest theological minds so far in the world, 
They both got it wrong. We do not know when the end will come. Jesus doesn't know when the end will come. Therefore, the point we're going to have to be understanding is, Jesus says, like, here's your remedy. Always be ready. Verse 35, keep your motor running, right? Keep your Jesus motor running. You don't know when the master of the house will return. So verse 36, stay ready. Verse 37, watch. Just a quick story that's popped in my head. When we lived in Sarasota, Florida as a kid, two-story house, my bedroom window looked over the road, and and I would do this every school day at least. My dad would come home, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock, whatever time, and I would run upstairs before I thought he was going to go home, look out the window, and just look for his, his car. And there, you know, there it comes. And so he would come, and I'd be watching. I was ready. I'd run downstairs, listen for the garage door to open, and I was right by the door. And there he would come, watching, ready for his arrival. That's what Jesus is saying here. He doesn't give us a chart, but he does give us instructions. Don't despair. Don't think the world is beyond control. Uh, Do this, if you would, and live. Now, one last thing before we get to some of the verses. We've been saying that we're not exactly sure. We're not going to say what Jesus is actually saying as far as the details that some people would like to go to. I don't think that's healthy for us as a congregation. But this is healthy. When we listen to Jesus speak here, What we need to understand is this is be something I would say like a a photograph, okay? The nature of prophecy in the Bible is much like a photograph. So think of it this way. You have a picture. There's something in the foreground. There's something in the middle. There's something in the background. If you focus on just one part, it's hard to focus on the other parts, and you might miss the big picture. Prophecy is much like this. Some of it is in the foreground. Some of it is in the middle. Some of it is in the background. I'll give you one example, okay? Jeremiah has a prophecy, Jeremiah chapter 24. He was speaking to the people of God right before they were going to be taken away from um, their nation, the Babylonian captivity, 586, 587 BC. He said that. Some of those things he said were immediately fulfilled in 586 BC. Other things he said would come to light, come to truth when Jesus came to earth. For example, in chapter 24, he quotes God, I'll give you a new heart because of my pledge to you in the new covenant. And of course, when Jesus walks the earth, the new covenant comes. However, there's other things that he says that has not been fulfilled, a further aspect to his words that comes past when Jesus arrives and so there you have it. You have, the, you have the foreground, you have the middle ground, you have the background. So when you come to chapter 13 of Mark's gospel, it's very, very similar. Some of the things that Jesus will say will take place immediately. When the temple falls and Jerusalem is sacked. Other things will happen in time and the final things at the end of time. It isn't always clear. Sometimes people do say it is. But still, we have a sensible way to look at this. So some of this is historical. Some of this is, is eschatological. You, know, you understand what I mean? Uh, the final end, eschaton, the end. So when you read this, you're going to find that there's dimensions to this which are obvious and immediate in their application. But there's also a dimension which is, kind of pushes past the times in which these people are living and perhaps even past the times that we live. Because we do not know when the end will come. Just like Jesus doesn't know when the end will come. And if you think of it that way, I think it will help you. And remember, 
This is practical. This is pastoral. There's a historic aspect to it that we need to have, but there's also that kind of eschatological process, a a future aspect to it that we need to yield to as well. And frankly, what I want to tell you is that they're all kind of interwoven together. So three words, quickly, abomination, tribulation, and then imitation, right? All right, the abomination which causes desolation, that's verse 14, then the tribulation in that context, and then all these imitation Jesuses, which we read about in verses 22 and 3. Okay, verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us in chapter 24, this is what he says. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. So that's a little helpful because Matthew tells us a little bit more than Mark. Mark says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, we ask the question, where does this not belong? Matthew answers that question for us, right? He doesn't belong in the holy place, the place where God is meeting with his people in the temple. So we have that part. Okay, so also if we ask, where does the abomination that causes desolation come from, right? Because remember, some of Mark's readers were from Rome. They might not know. Well, Matthew would help them. You need to read the book of Daniel. And what Jesus does in that short little statement is he fuses a lot of different verses from Daniel into that one little statement that he says. So just let me read you one passage from Daniel. This is Daniel chapter 11, verses 31 and 32. Forces will rise up to desecrate the temple of fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. There's that phrase. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will stand firm. It's a good sentence and take action, right? So this abomination will take place. And by the time the Gospels are read, there's at least one time when this abomination, which causes desolation, actually had taken place. It was in the year 168 BC. So this is 168 years before the birth of Jesus, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, he attempted to just stamp out the Jewish faith. And one of the things he did is he took a pig, pig's flesh, he put it on the Jewish altar, and he slaughtered it, sacrificed it. He set up a statue of Zeus, and he ordered the Jewish people to worship it. Now, the people listening to Jesus, they would be aware of that past event. And the people reading the Gospels for the first time, at least historically, would know something of that event in the way, if you would, um, a child would know in an American school something about World War II or something about Vietnam, the Vietnam War. And you see, what Jesus is saying here is that there's more of this to come, right? The powers of evil, if you like, pounding on that same door, the blaspheming of God, the destruction of the place where people meet God, the temple. And Luke's gospel helps us even more because this is what he records for us. This is in chapter 21. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Okay, now you'll notice if you have an NIV, verse 14 has a little text note by the word it, right? And if you follow your eyes down to the bottom, you'll see that they say it could be he. Okay, in other words, there are variant translations, both in English and in Greek, to be honest with you, that lend itself to a he and not an it. So this is what we need to know. There are these approaching forces of evil, 
that, that is going to be personified in some way in a person. So if you put it together, you have it like this. You have these approaching forces of domination, an army. That's what Matthew's gospel tells us. You have this expression of abomination to the temple, which causes uh, desolation. And this notion of the abomination could take on a personification, a personal, physical presence, a he and not just an it. In other words, it's what the Bible tells us later on. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. 1 John 4, 3. And the spirit of the Antichrist, listen carefully, is everything that opposes Jesus Christ. Everything that profanes Jesus Christ. Everything that stands against Christ, his good news, and his kingdom expansion. That is the spirit of the Antichrist And it could be, probably will be personified in a person. And you see, that helps the reader see the historical aspect is always set within a larger, if you would, end times framework. Now the help for them in that context is there, isn't it? Because it's immediate for them. That's verse 14. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus is giving them exact orders. There is an expectation of this particular abomination of desolation to take place in their lifetime. And that's why verse 15 is so graphic. You see it there. Jesus is like, get out. Get out of there now. Right? When you see this stuff happening, verse 15, if you're on the roof, you just leave. Don't get your family pictures. You just get out of there. You're you're in the field. When the abomination happens, you get out. You, you run to the mountains, right? This is my second Lord of the Rings illustration. Flee to Isengard, right? Two towers, get out and go to Isengard right now. And God have mercy on you if you're a pregnant or a nursing mother. And pray, Jesus says. Notice that it won't take place in winter. That's interesting, right? Pray that it won't take place in winter, the hardship that that would incur. And by the way, Matthew adds pray that it won't take place on the Sabbath. I mean, think about that for a moment. What would be the dilemma for a Jewish person on the Sabbath? What, should, should, we, should we go and run and break Sabbath when this abomination happens? Or should we stay and worship? Right? Should we stay or should we go? If we stay, there's going to be trouble. What does Jesus say? He's like Gandalf again, last reference, sorry. Run, you fools. Get out of there now. And why does Jesus say make a run for it, right? Look at verse 13. He just told them, verse 13, he who is faithful to the end will be saved. Why does he say run when he says he who's faithful to the end will be saved? Well, let's just think. It's true that Jesus wants them to be completely committed to the faith in the gospel. But Jesus wants them to know there's no reason for them to be fixated on a building, the temple, or a place, Jerusalem, right? All that's over with. There's no special place to meet God anymore, and there's no special city to be protected by God. So they're not tied to a building any longer. They're not tied to a place any longer, but they are tied to a person, Jesus Christ, and they're tied to his message, the gospel. Therefore, they are to endure to the end for the gospel, right? But when this abomination happens, Jesus says, you just need to make a run for it. Don't be brave here. Get out. Get out. And so what do we know historically? Well, Eusebius, he is a early church historian. 
He records for us that in AD 67, when the revolt of the Jews to Rome took place, the believing Christians in Jerusalem obeyed Jesus Christ. They did make a run for it. They fled to the mountains of Pela, and they were rescued. They were saved. So the immediacy of that verse 14 and 15, that's something that we have to reckon with. And by the way, the Jewish historian Josephus, to give some kind of indication of how terrible that event took place, he wrote five books. This was the fifth book, The, the, the War of the Jews. And he describes how 97,000 people in this event were taken captive. And, and listen, 1.1 million people died by slow starvation and the sword. Listen to his words. Then did the famine widen its progress and devoured the people by whole house and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children dying of starvation. The lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children and young men wandered about the marketplace like shadows, all swelled with famine and fell down dead. Whosoever their misery ceased, seized them. As for burying them, those that were sick themselves were not able to do it. And those who were hardy and well were deterred by the multitude of the dead and the uncertainty of when they would die themselves. For many died as they were burying others and many went to their own coffins before the fatal hour. There was no lamentations made under their calam- these calamities. The famine confounded all natural passions. A deep silence and a kind of deadly night had seized upon the city. And so what he's describing there is the, the events surrounding that A.D. 70 Roman uh, surrounding the city of Jerusalem and then eventually its destruction. I'm not going to read the rest. It's worse, but he does describe uh, cannibalism was one of the results of the famine. Hmm. Now, when we read this this morning, you know, we're just a few days from Thanksgiving and, and we say the abomination which causes desolation and tribulation. Right now, we do not have a clue what these people have went through. The worst we've known will not register what I've just read. But here's the question. It has to be asked. Are we then to assume that the events of AD 70 uh, have exhaustively fulfilled the prophecy of Jesus here? Jesus here. Some people say it, it has. Personally, I think it's safe to say this. History teaches me that man as man will, will not change and we can be terribly evil We can be terribly cruel. We can be terribly greedy. So in one sense, whether it's exhausted or not, it really doesn't matter because men and women will be evil. And so when we read the balance of our Bibles, for example, 1 John and what John says about the Antichrist that are in the world when he wrote and the the final embodiment of that person that Paul writes about in Thessalonians as well, In fact, listen to what Paul says about this this person. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is 2 Thessalonians 2, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by a word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. 
and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything, everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, now let's not just fly over that last little phrase because it struck me when Paul wrote this letter, it was around 53 A.D., why would we be bothered if this man goes into the temple of God and sets himself up as God, proclaiming himself to be God? I mean, in one sense, the temple is useless now. Jesus, whose cross and his resurrection put an end to the temple and the need of the temple. So I asked myself, what's the big deal about them setting himself up in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, at least for the Christian? 168 B.C., temple happened. The destruction of the temple happened. It happened again in 70 AD. And at 70 AD, the point that it was showing was the temple order, the Jewish order, is really dead. The temple really has no meaning. And so if someone desecrated it, in reality, besides the loss of human life, it wouldn't really matter. Human loss would be sad. But spiritually, it would not mean a thing if the new covenant is true. So I asked myself the question, why did Paul say that? Because what some people do is they say, you know what? That's what needs to happen. We need to put another temple in Jerusalem. If we build a temple in Jerusalem, then Jesus will come back quicker. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. I really don't know. But this is what I did. I found the oldest commentary that I had. Okay? And what I found was this. That little phrase um, sets himself up in God's temple. This commentator said this, that... That was Paul's usual way that he used or would use that as a metaphor for the church. That's what he's saying. So what he said was when Paul says, sets himself up in God's temple, that's a metaphor for the church. And he gives four scriptures. 1 Corinthians 16, 17, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, Ephesians 2, 21, actually three. I didn't write the other one down, sorry. So that struck me. So the reason why I kind of walked you through that, the point is, is to argue for historical fulfillment of chapter 13 and what takes place in 70 AD as, it, as exhausting the words of Jesus, that leaves a whole lot of questions. And if you push it out and you pay attention that would be wrong as well because that leaves more questions. 2 Thessalonians 2 leaves questions. So what do you do? Well, I pull out my Sinclair Ferguson quote. I hope I'm not boring you here, but this is what he says. A confession of ignorance about the precise significance of some of these things is nothing of which to be ashamed. So I'm confessing a little bit of ignorance and I'm not ashamed. But this is what I know. This is what I know. Remember those two ladies that I can't stop talking about? The widow to the left of chapter 13 and the lady who gave everything she had or gave a year's worth of wages in chapter 14? They teach me how to live in these last days. They teach me how to live in these last days. That's number one abomination. Quickly now, tribulation. Number two. So when I use the word, I use it as the context here, verse 19, because those will be days of distress unequal from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Now, don't immediately think this couldn't be the immediate historical context because remember what I just read to you from Josephus. I mean, do you think those people going through that event, 1.1 bodies laying all over the place, 
Could it get any worse for them? The extent of that, do you think it could be any worse? And Josephus just writes about the physical suffering. He doesn't say anything about the mental and the theological suffering. This is what I mean. At that point, they know themselves as the people of God. The promises of God. And in the midst of all that, they are being butchered. I am sure some people were saying, where in the world is God now? Is there a God? When we eat our own kind, is there a God? Did the prophets lie? Is there no salvation? You're right. To think that God would let this, let this happen? What's happening? Well, let me tell you what's happening. This is, the, this is the dark part of the gospel. In many ways, that was part and parcel of the judgment of God on their unbelief. Right? Jesus gave them a way out. The Christians did believe and they did flee the city. Just like Jesus said, the Jewish people did not believe Jesus. And therefore, because they did not obey Jesus, they were left to themselves and they decided and they found themselves in what? In tribulation and suffering and pain and death. Now, if you're a tune, is that not like a little mini picture of the gospel and the eternal punishment that comes to a person who rejects the gospel, who rejects the words of Jesus, therefore they are outside of Jesus, and the worst possible thing happens to them that they could ever know, eternal life without Jesus. Again, so if we simply say that that was just for them in that context, then we're missing a whole lot. The Bible's clear. The closer we come to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater the suffering will be in each of our contexts. Final word then. We said abomination, tribulation, finally imitation. Verse 21. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs in Christ and false prophets will appear and perform many signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even to the the elect. So verse 23, be on your guard. So these were the kind of individuals, unlike Jesus, who will do things, miraculous things, not to help people, but to deceive people, right? What do you think when you think about Jesus' miracles? When Jesus did his miracles, they were to help, and it was to show that the kingdom of God had actually came in him. Jesus was beginning to restore things back to the way they were meant to be. But these false messiahs, they do the spectacular to appeal to the natural cravings of man, right? To the people who don't want any part with Jesus, but they like the show. They like the excitement of it all. Many false messiahs of Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Christian Science, Scientology, Unification Church. You know, when I just gave you those five different sequences of places, that's millions of people, you guys. Millions of people who've been deceived. You might know some in those circles. Do you still remember the, the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas? Remember, he told his followers, Do not pray to God because I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. And we know how that went. So that's what we find. Imposters who will gather a few people or gather millions of people just like Jesus said. And by the way, I mean, we need to do this. You see them on the internet. Sometimes if you have cable TV, you see them on there, the healing ministries and the big promotions, signs and wonders and miracles as if signs and miracles are the key to prove that a person is from God. 
Now, without making any judgment, if they are or are not true servants of God, I would simply say what Jesus said. According to Jesus, signs and miracles are no clear indication that a person is a true servant of God. It's not a test at all. And notice where the mercy of God is. Notice where the attention of God is. Verse 20b, for the sake of the elect, those he's chosen, he will shorten the days. Now, I'm not sure what that means, shorten the days. I can't find any parallel verse in the Bible, the whole of the Bible that I looked. But whatever we say, this is what we need to know. The affection of God is for his own. He shortens the days. And also notice he's the one who protects his own so that they do not fall, right? They don't fall foul of the deception and the seduction of those false messiahs. Because they are the elected, they will not be deceived. Verse 12, only for the elect that promise is true. And Jesus begins then to close this section by saying, verse 23, be on your guard. In other words, I've given you sufficient warning, right? Be on your guard. And you know that word be or that phrase, excuse me, be on your guard is actually one Greek word. And the word can be translated careful, right? Careful. When these dark times come, you watch, you pray, you serve, be brave, don't turn inward, don't be selfish, greedy, but but look outward, careful, careful. Now we need to come to an end. I quoted from Augustine a while back, this is what he said, this is another sermon, he said, you God have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. In other words, this is what Augustine said. Until we view our whole life through the lens of the gospel, who we really are before a holy God, and then to apply the truth of Jesus and to enjoy the truth of what Jesus did at the cross, until we view life through that, we're going to be restless, we're going to be agitated, we're going to be edgy, we're going to be anxious, and we're going to be fearful, as opposed to calmness, peace, assurance, and and noble action. It's the same thing here. Jesus is saying all of human history can't be understood properly except through me, right? You know that little saying that history is truly his story? So the way to understand the story of the world and the story of our lives is this. Underneath all wars, we'll say behind all wars, behind all the hate that's in the world, behind every broken marriage, every broken relationship, every abomination of desolation, every rebellious human, behind our broken lives, our broken families, everything that represents evil and rebellion, which where did that begin? It began in the garden, Romans 5, and it affects human life. Behind all of that is the dark forces of hell. But Jesus has come. And he is the only one to defeat the evil one. And how did he do it? He didn't do it with bombs. He didn't do it with lasers. He did it on the cross. The battle then is over. It's not finished, but it is won. And we live in the tension of all that. That's what I'm trying to say. We live in the tension of winning but still having to live here and endure and carry our cross. 
So this hymn, I love this hymn, makes complete sense to me. Ye fearful saint, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. So the point is, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, we come to these things, we come to the end of the age, the end of the life, our life, the end of the world, we come singing. We come with hope. We come with the knowledge that our biggest problem has already been taken care of in Christ on the cross as he dies for our sins. That's amazing. When a person takes a look at the world through that lens, I promise you, everything changes because the gospel is the only story that doesn't flame out. It's the only security that will not flame out. The gospel is the only story that is immutable and indestructible. So if we get some of this right in Mark 13, the prophetic part, or we get all of it right, in one sense, it really doesn't matter. Jesus is declaring pastorally, rest content in this. God reigns. We go into the world saying God reigns. We go into the world with the gospel. God reigns. Peace now between you and God is possible through Jesus Christ. We need to stop. But let me just give you this one final story. There's a book that I have. It's called Against All Hope. It's the Cuban prison journals of a man named Abando Valaderas. He was in prison. He wasn't a Christian. Yet he saw in Cuba when Christians would go to meet their death, they, were always, they would always shout this, Viva Cristo Rey! Viva Cristo Rey! He, this is what he says. Those cries of those executed Christians, long live Christ the King, had awakened me to new life. Those cries had become such a potent and stirring symbol that by 1963, the men being condemned to death were gagged before being carried down to be shot because their jailers feared those shouts of long live Christ the King. You imagine that the jailers have the power. They have the guns, the weapons, the sword, whatever they, and they fear these guys and they try to gag him, gag them because they say, long live Christ the King. What were they doing? They were doing Philippians 1. Do not be afraid of those who oppose you. Stay true to the faith. When you, when you do so unashamed and unafraid, it is a clear sign to your captors of their destruction and your salvation. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Right. Good. That's the one time it's not a, a monologue but a dialogue. Good. Because here's the question I had. It's funny he said that. Ask yourself, how many times in the course of the week did you say Jesus Christ? Not God, not Father, but Jesus Christ. Thank you. Our only hope in life and in death. Take him. Take him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the light of the world. You are our only hope. You are our final and full security. You are the way to eternal life.
Father, we pray that you would restrain the enemies of your truth, that you would preserve your truth, the truth of the gospel, and animate all of us, beginning with myself, in whatever way that pleases you, so that we would glory in the gospel, put no confidence in the flesh, and that you would give us power to serve you and tell the world about you with a good conscience. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.